Talking sports as they report Back and forth from their home court They talk the sports if you're not sure They talk of sports and then talk more About all sports East, West, South, North Ryan talks sports Andrew retorts And George will hear as they both sort Through all the sports they both support The Walk-Ons What's up team? Welcome to the Walk-Ons podcast It is Thursday, July 22nd we got a huge show for you guys today Of course the Milwaukee Bucks First time champions in a half century We've also got an interview with former head coach of the Chicago Bears, Denver Broncos, and Carolina Panthers, John Fox. You don't want to miss that. But Andrew, the big story leading off the Milwaukee Bucks are the champs. And I don't think anyone in Milwaukee has stopped drinking Milwaukee's Beast or that spotted cow pretty much since the, the Bucks clinched. What do you think? I, I know the Bucks haven't. I don't know if you've seen all the gifts. And yeah, the P.J. Tucker definitely has. And he's been just chugging like thousands of dollars worth of champagne. <laughs> yeah, so they're they're definitely making Milwaukee proud. They're taking on, you know, David Bakhtiari taught them how to chug alcohol like a champ and they're just rolling with it. So yeah, they're they're gonna be celebrating until you know, until they find out that Rogers is no longer playing with the Packers and they're chugging for a different reason. Yeah, uh, they, they don't need a whole lot of reason to drink out there in Wisconsin, but uh yeah, between Rogers and the Bucks, it's gonna give them at least six to twelve months of of content there. But look, let's let's focus on the game itself, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, we were talking about the series leading up to it, I mean, certainly when the Suns went up 2-0, it seemed like it was kind of a foregone conclusion. In my personal opinion, it looked like the Suns were clearly the better team. Obviously, I was very wrong. I mean, the Bucks had them basically exactly where they wanted them. They've been down 2-0 at least once before in the series. So, I mean, this is kind of that resilient team. But, you know, I mean, all the love due to Giannis, you know, Giannis Antetokounmpo. I think, of course, Chris Middleton, Drew Holiday, some huge defensive plays there. But, Giannis, the Greek freak. I mean, the guy goes for a 50-burger. The guy is just living it up. Like, I guess in my my standpoint is, is he was getting so much, you know, vitriol. And, I mean, there's there's these videos coming out of LeBron James saying, oh, Giannis can't score. Giannis can't score. That's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. I mean, yeah, Giannis can't really shoot. But then, then lo and behold, the guy goes 17 and 19 from the free throw line. He gets 50. I mean, yeah, there's one thing if you can't shoot, but it's another thing if you know exactly what he's going to do, get into the paint, and you still can't stop him. Yeah, no, a lot of it was made about this playoffs was the Bucks' lack of ability to make adjustments. Yeah. But as soon as they were like, we're just going to put Giannis under the basket and have him just dominate, I mean, that's when he put up 40 and 50 points every single night. And then obviously I think the turning point was the block in game four Huge. because that, you know, what's going to get forgotten was the Suns probably should have won that game. And if they win that game, we might be talking now how the Phoenix Suns are NBA champs. And so even though like that one play typically doesn't decide a game, that was the momentum shift in the series. Once he made that play and then obviously game five with that alley-oop from Drew Holiday at the yeah, end, awesome. those two, those are two iconic plays. And typically when we look back at champions, there's always one, two, one or two moments we can point to and say, that's the moment that like is going to define this championship when we talk about it 20 years later. So, you know, the, the Bucks were lucky to be there in the first place because, you know, we can talk about how the Nets maybe should have won that series. And, but yeah, Giannis just really was kind of the difference because the, the Suns had two good players and maybe Chris Paul was hurt. Well, I don't know that we'll ever really know, but he was the difference. They just put him under the basket and said, Hey, you may not hit your free throws, but you're going to be a force to reckon with down there. And that ended up being the difference. Yeah, it kind of feels like me or, or, or any one of us like, you know, going to like a preschool or something and just like backing down a bunch of six year olds. It's just like, yeah, give me the ball in the post. I'm going to dominate. I'm going to just throw throw a little elbow here and then I'm just going to score. I'm just going to put up 50. I mean, the the absolute dominance level of Giannis and you mentioned it, right, Andrew, is the questions were, can the Bucks make the adjustment to 
to turn this tide of the series. And then suddenly it became, well, the Suns are trying to make adjustments, but they can't do anything to stop it. And Giannis really just took over that series. And I think really from I mentioned again, the, the defensive sort of cohesion that the Bucks put into place. I mean, everybody was talking about sort of how good of a defense the Suns were going into the series. It really was Milwaukee's defense. And then of course those iconic plays. I mean, I think back to the, the Cavs Warriors series, you've got that block from LeBron on Andrea Godala. You've got that three pointer in Steph Curry's eye, which is just so painful. It'll, that'll probably be stung in my memory forever of Kyrie Irving shooting over and hitting that big three. But I mean, the, the absolute run that Giannis has had is, is, I mean, it's as good as I've seen in recent memory. That block, the alley-oop, and the guy was basically doing it on one leg after we saw his knee buckle the other way, you know, a couple games earlier. I mean, the Bucks, ha- the resiliency from the Bucks is something that I haven't really seen in recent memory. It's, it's absolutely incredible. It's amazing. I guess from, from that standpoint, I mean, do you think – I don't want to ask, do the Bucks win this series or the Suns lose it? But what do you like? You think game game five is that turning point in in this series or game four? I guess, huh? Yeah, I mean, I think it was game four was the turning point. Yeah. I think you have to give it to the Bucks and say they won this series. Oh, wow. Now, obviously, there are some things that went wrong for the Suns. Like I said, we don't know. Maybe Chris Paul was hurt. Obviously, the Saric injury ended up being way bigger deal than we expected. But you know, when Giannis is dropping forty and fifty points a night, I don't really look at and say like, oh, the other team lost the game. You know, when Chris Middleton was going off, Drew Holiday, even though he wasn't lighting it up from the from the field every night, was making an extremely important impact and was a huge reason why Chris Paul was limited. And, you know, they, they got Bobby Portis played well, Brooke Lopez, Pat Connaughton were all they were all making the plays that you needed to win a championship. And, yeah, there's some things that could have gone differently that through no fault of their own, the Suns could have won the title. But I don't think you can look at and say the Suns really dropped the ball and lost the series. Cause I think the bucks made the plays when they needed to. And that's why they're champions at the end of the day. Yeah. I think that's fair. I mean, yeah, certainly. I, I think it's kind of a loaded question anyways, but yeah, the, the bucks just, they, they took this series. They absolutely just grabbed it by the throat and they took it, but look, let, let's look ahead really quickly. And this is one of the most impossible questions out there, but I still think it's kind of fun to say, right. Who, who out of these two teams sort of has more poised for a run? I mean, certainly from, from the Sun standpoint, there are some, some supporting cast guys. I mean, you got the Cameron Payne, Frank Kaminsky, Torrey Craig. Those guys are, are free agents. Certainly not sure what's going to happen with Chris Paul. There's been a lot of rumblings that his boy, LeBron James, wants him in L.A. Um, you know, the Bucks have a, a few free agencies, free agents coming up, P.J. Tucker, uh, Thought the Nassus onto Takumpo, the, the brother of, uh, of Giannis. You got Jeff Teague, a couple guys. But, I mean, is this, is this primed to be a potential dynasty in Milwaukee? I, I'm not going to say dynasty, but I think of the two, they're the most poised to return next year. One, because now they have a championship pedigree. They've done it. They're a playoff-tested team. Two, they have Giannis, who took his game to another level. I would not be surprised if this performance this, pro- this postseason didn't just translate to them winning a championship this year but translated to Giannis really becoming the face of the league, um, you know, as LeBron and KD get older. And then three, it's just the, the Eastern Conference is so much worse than the West from top to bottom. I mean, I think no matter what, you can argue the Nets might be better next year, but the Bucks are the clear number two, if that's the case. Whereas the Suns could return everybody and be the same exact team. And you can make the argument, they may not even be a top four team in the West next year, just because the Lakers will be healthy. You know, I'm sure Denver or Utah could make a move that suddenly puts them over the top. Um, and the Warriors are going to be back with Clay healthy. There's just, and I'm sure there's going to be a team that makes a jump that no one's expecting. It's just the Western Conference is, is a much more difficult path to, ter- or to navigate to get to the finals. So 
on that alone, you would make, you would say the bucks, but then for the other reasons as well, I'm not going to say dynasty, but they're going to be good for a really long time. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think the, the way it sets up, right, the West is a crapshoot. The NBA in general is a crapshoot anyways, but yeah, I mean, certainly being in the East, Milwaukee certainly has it kind of set up there for, for a nice run. And, you know, just to go back to Giannis really quickly, I mean, I'm, I was getting so sick of all these people basically saying like, oh, you know, he's the problem. He can't shoot. He can't score this, that, and the other thing. But now he is a finals MVP, two regular season MVPs, defensive player of the year. And yeah, he's just 26 years old entering his prime. I mean, this dude is prime for one of the best careers in NBA history. In your opinion, Andrew, is Giannis a surefire Hall of Famer already? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he could retire tomorrow and that like you, that, that resume you just listed is up there. It's like already got everything you need. And he was doing things like they were showing statistics every night where it's like the only people who've done what he've done, what he did is like Hakeem, Michael Jordan, you know, like legitimately top 10 to 15 players of all time. I'm not saying he's going to be up there, but right now he could legitimately be a hall of fame player. And like you said, he's only entering his prime. He's going to keep putting up numbers. He's going to keep, you know, racking up, you know, postseason runs. And so I'm really excited to watch Giannis, for someone not on the Nuggets, he's my favorite NBA player right now. Yeah, I absolutely love him. I love the vibe. I mean, he really just – he seems like that true humble superstar, right? He's not that guy who's going to get too big. Obviously, everybody knows about his 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 bring, upbringing there in, in, in Greece. I mean, his mom was selling things in the street just trying to put food on the table. Next thing you know, the guy is, is an NBA champion. And, I mean, I love the video where he goes to Chick-fil-A and he says, I want 50. Give me 50, not 51, not 49, 50, which – on his part is actually brilliant because he missed that last free throw. No, nobody remembers 51. Everybody remembers a 50 burger in a, in a clinching game to win a title. I mean, that's, that's beautiful and all the best for him. I mean, it's a guy, if, if anybody in this league deserves that kind of uh, recognition, it's, it's Giannis Antetokounmpo. I really just think that's true. Yeah, no, I mean, I, I just think it's, just, it's, he really, for, uh, it's, it's, it's so weird to me that he was getting criticism from just like a personal level before this season, but I think he really captured the hearts of all NBA fans this offseason. I, I, I know there was the the 10 second countdowns in Brooklyn and Atlanta and Phoenix, but even even like Suns fans right now have to be like, I'm bummed we lost, but you can't hate Giannis. You know, he's he's not this guy that you know everyone just wants to uh you know hate on just because he's really good. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, yeah, we, we've beaten this horse to death. He's awesome. He deserves it. I'm really happy for him. And I love the fact that he wore it. I don't know if you saw that video, Andrew, but he was, he shot a basketball into the crowd during the parade today. And he went and took about 16 to 18 seconds just to get it in there, just to, you know, just to really drive that home. <laughs> so, uh, you know, congrats to the Milwaukee Bucks. Congrats to Giannis Antetokounmpo. They are the champs. And, uh, you know, that, that Larry O'Brien trophy is going to find its way into Milwaukee and God knows what's going to happen to it. It's going to get doused in quite a few light beers. I'm sure of it, but uh, we've got John Fox coming up, legendary head coach. So we're going to take a break and we'll be right back. All right. Our guest today is a football legend, about 40 years in the sport. He's a former head coach of the Carolina Panthers, Denver Broncos, and Chicago Bears. He's won both an NFC championship with the Panthers back in 03 and an AFC championship with the Broncos in 2013. One of the few coaches in history to do that. It is John Fox. John, how are you, sir? Thank you so much for joining us. Doing great, Ryan. Appreciate you having me, and uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be on with y'all. Well, we are very excited to have you on. So, look, you've had a very storied head coach career. I want to get right into it. You know, before you became a head man, I mean, you were an assistant to some all-timers, right? Chuck Noll, Bobby Ross, the late Jim Fossil, just to name a few. I mean, I'm just curious from that standpoint, 
I'm sure you've received some sage advice from all those guys, but what, what maybe are the top couple tips that have stuck with you throughout your entire coaching career? Well, I think uh, probably the number one was uh, Chuck Knoll. And, you know, to be even keeled, you know, don't have peaks and valleys, you know, the team, the organization, anybody in the building looks at you for the leadership, but is always uh, to be even keeled, you know, not be all high with the, the wins and all down in the dumps with the losses, but just trying to be the same guy. And I would always use that saying with our players, okay, is, hey, be the same guy. Otherwise, I'm not going to know how to use you. Exactly. And you mentioned some of the greats of the game right there and kind of using that as a segue. You mentioned on the phone this week that you're going to the Hall of Fame ceremony here in a couple of weeks to support, you know, John Lynch, who's a good friend, and Peyton Manning, who, of course, played for you. Can you kind of walk us through what it's like to get to go to Canton for these ceremonies and just be surrounded by football greatness? And then two, from Peyton's speech, you know, he's a well-known funny guy. Are you expecting some humor or you think he's going to bring the waterworks when he gets up on stage? <laughs> you know, Peyton, Peyton's so darn good. He, he'll, he'll, he'll hit all the facets of the speech, I promise you. Uh, he is hilarious, uh, but yet, you know, he can be very serious too. And he's a, a great leader uh, in the locker room. He was with Indy and he definitely, I know for sure, was, you know, with the Broncos and, um, you know, just a great player. As far as... Uh, you know, the other greatness, you know, I got to go, you know, and see Champ Bailey and, um, you know, just, uh, you know, Pat Bowen, my owner, when I was with the Broncos, you know, passed a few years back. Uh, what a great career he had as an owner. Um, you know, I was just with Michael Strahan out in the Bahamas. Uh, you know, he, now he's a movie star, basically. And I think people forgot he even played football, but I didn't. And he was a great, great player, a great, great leader. And you don't get to stay in coaching as long as I was able to, whether it was as an assistant or as a head coach, without having great players. And, you know, I've been blessed to have many, many, many great players. Yeah, well, look, you, you talk about great players, and you mentioned not getting too high, too low. I mean, I want to take a little walk down memory lane here in your first head coaching stop with the Carolina Panthers. I'm going to talk about a team being low. When you took that team over, they were 1-15. in 15. I mean, they were reeling. There were really no kind of roadmap there for success. But within two years, you guys were taking on the Patriots in the 2003 Super Bowl, which for my money is one of the best Super Bowls in history. Uh, I'm just curious, you know, it's your first head coaching job in the NFL. you got a 1-15 in 15 team. What's sort of your approach going into that and just kind of, you know, basically transforming that team like you did in such a short time, which is really kind of unprecedented in the NFL. Well, it's kind of amazing because some guys went into the ring of honor uh, three years ago uh, there in Charlotte and I got invited and I got a chance to be with them. And one of my close friends in Charlotte had a big party for him uh, out of his house and just talking to those guys, you know, you forget even, you know, I was there, I was the coach. Uh, but they said the one thing that really stuck with them at our very first team meeting was, you know, they were one in 15. And I'd been a longtime assistant coach and most recently been the defensive coordinator with the uh, Giants. Uh, but, but they said that I stood in front of them and I said, you guys quit. Nobody is that bad that they're one in 15. So I just want you to know right now, before we started, and I looked in all of their eyes and I said, I know y'all quit. And you know, they just never forgot that. It stayed with them. And I think, uh, you know, the guys that were uh, still around, I mean, you know, Musa Muhammad, Jake Delhomme, uh, you know, there's so many great guys and players, you know, Jordan Gross, my left tackle. Uh, we had great people and great players. And that was, a whole, that was a whole lot of fun team to be around for sure. 
Absolutely. And you talk about a team, you know, and the importance of not quitting a team that you coached that definitely did not quit may not have won the Super Bowl at the end of the year, but was definitely a fan favorite was the 2011 Broncos, which is famously remembered for Tim Tebow's kind of the Tim Tebow year where he was, you know, bringing late game heroics. It seemed every single week. And then obviously was capped off with that Steelers win in the crazy wildcard game. I'll never forget that. But understandably Tebow was the talk of the league that season. But what people often forget is you guys completely changed up the offense mid season to go from Kyle Orton's kind of passing attack to that run option with Tim. Can you kind of walk us through what went into making that decision to adopt the run oriented offense or, and then obviously speaking of that Steelers game, can you just walk us through what it was like to be in the stadium that night for that, you know, all time historic moment? Well, there was a whole lot happened leading up to that. And, you know, as you mentioned, Kyle Orton was a starting quarterback and early in training camp, you know, John Elway and myself, I mean, it wasn't close, you know, as far as, who the best quarterback was. And uh, that's the way we started the season. Um, You know, we had a Tim Tebow package in our offense the whole season, you know, be third and one. It could be inside the five, you know, goal line type of offense uh, because it gets rough sledding down there when that field gets short in the red area. And, you know, a running quarterback really opens up your run game. You know, you have a lot lot of options there because defenses don't have the one-man advantage. Uh, What I mean by that is the quarterback typically doesn't run. Uh, So the defense always has a one-man advantage, you know, in the run fit. So um, it definitely opens things up. The game's changed a lot since then, believe it or not. And that was 10 years ago. But, um, you know, we we had that package in all season. Uh, We made the change against San Diego at home. Um, You know, when we were playing, we were down, we put Tim in. And I'll be a son of a gun if, you know, in the last play of the game, he wasn't throwing the ball into the end zone to win the game. Now, we lost the game, but it was the strangest thing I'd ever seen was he was leaving the field a mile high, just lost to a division opponent, and people are going crazy. They were so excited, not that we won or lost, uh, but because Tim played. And, you know, we went on a 6-0 and run that year that actually go from – you know, a, a losing team to winning the division and making the playoffs. Uh, so it was just uh, anybody on that staff, whether you were a player or a coach, um, you know, has had never seen anything like it in their career and probably since. Yeah, it definitely was unprecedented. I'm just curious about that, that actual play, John, right? Because I saw, I think everybody kind of remembers where they were. Certainly Andrew does as, as a lifelong Broncos fan. That was the last time I was ever at Chili's. I was with my girlfriend at that time, who's now my wife. I can't believe she decided to marry me, but I remember that we just decided to eat some queso and I'm watching the game thinking that the Steelers are going to blow you guys out. But that final play, I mean, certainly maybe not the way you drew it up, you know, Demarius Thomas, 80 yards, but was that the actual play you were looking just to kind of maybe move the football and just get it to Demarius? And, or, you know, what were we looking for there? Well, you know, we played four full quarters and we really did have a lead and Pittsburgh came back to tie the game up. Um, we, we win the toss, we get the ball and we had run the play about six times. And when I say run, I mean an actual run. Yeah. We're off the same motion about six times during the game. And um, all we did is our offensive coaches kind of drew it up in the dirt and we were just going to do that short motion with Demarius again. And this time we faked the run and it was 11 up by the Pittsburgh Steelers. I mean, everybody played the run and, you know, uh, Timmy just threw a, a, you know, basically a four yard route right there. 
And then, um, you know, Demaria split the safety and went 80 for the walk-off touchdown. It was, and in my eye, I mean, for a playoff game, and it hadn't been in a minute, um, they were pretty excited. That place went berserk. Definitely. And, you know, we had Ike Taylor on a couple weeks ago who Demarius beat on that route. We didn't ask him about it, but I really kind of wish we had just to see what he would have thought. But, you know, that year, even though they made the playoffs and, and won a game, the, the offense, you know, struggled at times. But just two years later, 2013 with Peyton, you guys had the greatest offense in the history of the NFL statistically. Can you just kind of talk about, you know, what went into making those decisions to get that offense in that position? And then at what point did you remember being at training camp or in the beginning of the year and you went, we might not just have a good offense. We might have the greatest offense of all time. You know, I knew we were going to be talented, you know, because we, we really were, you know, good across the board. You know, our run game was really good. Our, our backs could do both parts of the job, meaning they could run, they could pass, protect, and they could pass catch. You know, we had a really good t tight end that was a young, you know, guy that missed his, his rookie year. But, I mean, I think he caught four touchdowns in the opener against Baltimore. You know, he was basically unheard of because he was hurt the year before. Uh, you know, both both our wideouts were Pro Bowl players. Uh, it was a big reason why we were able to lure, you know, um, Peyton to, to come to Denver. Uh, but he was uh, – <clears throat> I knew we were going to be pretty good. We were a little bit young. We were a little bit new. Uh, but, you know, Peyton had guys out there before practice, after practice. Uh, and, you know, he was more healthy uh, that season. Um, you know, I think he understood the offense. We grew the offense more that season with him. You know, it just all clicked. And, and you know, as the season went on, um, we just got better and better and better. And I thought our coaches, our offensive staff did a good job of kind of growing the playbook as we would go along because you got to change things up because these defensive coaches are too good in this league, you know, to keep doing the same thing over and over again. Uh, but, you know, it was a very imaginative, uh, you know, hardworking group that, that earned everything they got. Yeah, well, you mentioned some talented offensive players there, John. And, you know, obviously in your career, you've coached some all-time great offensive players. We mentioned Peyton, of course, Demarius Thomas, Steve Smith Sr., even had Keyshawn Johnson there for a season. But I think it's fair to say that your Colin Carb is really is, is one of the best defensive coaches the last few decades. I'm just curious, who is your favorite or maybe best defensive player that you've ever coached in your career? I mean, I think back to those, those, uh, those, those years with the Panthers. I mean, Dan Morgan, Julius Peppers, Thomas Davis Sr., I mean – you had some really, really good, good guys there. Well, I think, you know, I mean, I had Rod Woodson back, you know, when I was with the Steelers, yep. or Junior Seau when I was with the Chargers. Um, you know, it's, you just, you're blessed to be around great people and great players. And, um, you know, Von Miller, we drafted uh, my first year in Denver. He's turned out to be pretty good. Uh, you know, Julius, you mentioned, you know, I'm really excited to go to some of these, uh, you know, Hall of Fame deals because, you know, like Champ Bailey. I mean, I knew he was going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer. I mean, these guys were real dudes and uh, great careers. Um, but you don't get to hang around in this league as a coach, you know, unless you surrounded yourself with some great players. Definitely. And, you know, you, you had a great 16-year career in the NFL. And obviously, one of the things you had to prepare for each year was training camp. And that's one of the big reasons we had John this week is at this time of the year, you know, every fan base is working themselves up, convincing themselves they'll make the Super Bowl. Even the Jets fans are, you know, 
coming up with a couple of reasons to think they can make it a competitive year. But, you know, when you were the head coach, what was kind of your mentality at this time of the year? And then two, you know, uh, are you content to, to kind of be leaving the stress to the other 32 coaches this time around now that you're no longer coaching? Well, I, I do got to mention because I, I didn't coach a year ago, but what these coaches and players did uh, to navigate through this whole COVID thing is, I mean, I, it's, it's unbelievable to me. I talked to a couple of my buddies and they would have to be on the phone every morning of the work week at 5.30 to figure out whether they could even come to work or not. So the head trainer, the coach, and the GM uh, to whether even they could come into the office or whether they had to do it remotely. I, I just can't even imagine. And, and I thought all in all, for the most part, the league did a great job, the players, the coaches, uh, the staffs, you know, of making that happen. I, it's just remarkable to me. I hated the segue there, but, you know, as you mentioned, this might actually be a pretty normal training camp. And, you know, I know everybody's salivating because they just want to get back to work. They want to see their teammates. They want to see their coaching buddies. You know, they want to become a team again. And I think it's just remarkable how well these teams did, you know, when most of it was on video, uh, except on game day with no fans and no emotion. It's just remarkable that they put a product out there and shows the pros they are that they did and were able to do what they did. Yeah, it is pretty incredible. And John, you know, on, on the subject of training camp, I think we've, we've mentioned this topic ad nauseum, but it, and I feel compelled to mention it to you and, and see get your input on it. But one face that we're not going to see at training camp, at least not right now, is Aaron Rodgers in Green Bay. Uh, you were on the herd a few months ago, and, and Colin had brought up an assessment, you know, essentially saying that a star QB, especially one as a generational talent as Aaron Rodgers, deserves a little bit of input. Certainly doesn't look like he's getting that there in Green Bay. I mean, you point to an, you pointed to an example specifically of Bruce Arians just allowing Tom Brady to be Tom Brady, and look where that got him. It got him a Super Bowl. I'm just curious. Look, I don't want to talk about what's you know where Aaron Rodgers is going to end up. Is he going to play? Is he going to go to Jeopardy? I'm just curious from a coach's standpoint. How much, you know, how would you handle this situation, right? I mean, certainly it seems like his, Roger's gripe is with the front office, but, you know, as a coach and you have this, this Hall of Fame quarterback, how would you kind of handle something where, you know, that just seems like the two sides just can't come together on an agreement? Well, obviously, you know, at that point that, you know, is all you can do is sit down and talk. And the issue they have a little bit is if you believe the information is it's a little bit more with the front office. Um, that club is unique because they don't have an owner. I mean, they do have an owner, but it's not an individual. Um, and so I don't know who rectifies that. Sometimes that can be a blessing, but in this case, it might be a bit of a curse because uh, now it's almost like Aaron Rodgers versus the whole Green Bay Packer tribe you know it's not just an owner it's not just uh the team president or you know the normal hierarchy um and i never really like seeing this with players because my experience has been in most cases they end up on the short stick and i have great respect for players i have great respect for how hard they work uh, how hard of a living it is, believe it or not. You know, the fans see kind of the glamour of Sundays, but 
man, you, you get to see, you know, a guy coming off an injury, how hard it works. He's in that training room every day, how hard these guys train in the off season. So there's a lot of work that goes into it, which, and I have great respect for that. Um, so I just, you know, I go back to Le'Veon Bell. I think, you know, he had an offer from the Pittsburgh Steelers, decided to sit out a year, uh, ended up actually probably signing for less money uh, with the Jets. And I just don't think it works out. I, I just, uh, it's just me. And I'm not beating up Aaron Rodgers. This is not me against Aaron. As I mentioned, I have great respect. I just think that, you know, basically uh, owners and organizations have more money than players. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, kind of to, to backtrack a second, you, you mentioned this year, you, you really hope it's a normal year and everyone's kind of salivating to get at it, thinking it is going to be a normal, well, I guess not normal because we have a 17 game schedule now, but what are some of the kind of storylines or players you're looking out for this season? Oh, you mean as far as standout guys or standout just storylines? Or just, you know, if, if you're like, hey, I think, you know, I think the Ravens might be the team to actually watch in the AFC or anything, you know, just kind of who, who are the teams you're going to be watching, the players you're going to be keeping an eye out for? Well, a year ago, you know, I, I knew that COVID was going to have an impact and in, in particularly on young teams. But, you know, I thought that the more veteran teams, coaching staffs that were more, um, you know, uh, together for longer, uh, had more experience with each other. I thought those would be the types of teams that would, you know, make it to the dance. And, and for the most part, that proved pretty true. You know, not 100 percent, but for the most part, um, you know, that was it. You know, I think this year there'll be, you know, maybe a couple of young teams. Uh, it'll be more, um, uh, not that the experienced teams won't be at the top because they will, but I think there'll be a couple of surprise teams. You know, I'm looking a little bit, you know, a team like the Chargers, even a team like the Broncos in that same division. Um, you know, the Broncos, you know, with, I think, and a very, very improved defense. That defense could be as dominant as their 15 defense that helped carry them to that Super Bowl year. Um, you know, whereas the Chargers have a young quarterback and they've had explosive people and they've honestly been bitten by the injury bug, um, you know, over the last five years. You know, it's like every year it's some major player goes down even in camp, even before the first game. So um, those are two young teams that I like uh, as far as, uh, dominating, the, you know, I've, I've always liked Baltimore. I still love the fact that they can run the ball and they're going to run the ball for a thousand yards more than anybody else in the whole league. That's a huge advantage. Um, you know, so I like them along with the Chiefs coming out of the a uh, AFC. Uh, NFC wise, uh, you know, the West will be interesting this year. See what happens with San Francisco. You know, they got decimated by injuries a year ago. I look for them to kind of uh, rebound this year, especially on defense, because they got obliterated on defense a year ago. Uh, without really thinking about it a whole lot, those are the kind of the teams that, you know, I kind of look for bounces with. Um, you know, Cleveland last year, you know, made people, you know, forget about the brown bags for the most part. And, you know, I think they're going to get better. And don't forget about that defense. That defense is pretty good. Yeah, it's going to be a fun season, no doubt. But while we're on the topic of storylines, I think it, it we you know we'd be remiss not to mention the news that came down today from the NFL about the the COVID ruling now with forfeit, right? So with respect to unvaccinated players, we won't go too deep into the rule, but essentially what it says is if you if Team A has unvaccinated players that test positive, not only is that game forfeited and Team A doesn't make any money, Team B, their their opponent, nobody gets paid. 
So I'm just curious from your standpoint, I mean, put yourself in that position. Say you're, you're, you're the coach of team B team. You're supposed to go out on the field there, you know, 24 hours from now, they, they test positive with COVID game gets forfeited. Yeah. You get the W, but I mean, nobody gets paid. I mean, that's not going to make your, your players in the locker room very happy. Right. No, I think, um, you know, again, I honestly do think it's a huge competitive advantage to be vaccinated. All right. Because you're going to be able to go in person you know, sit in a real meeting, look at real tape with your teammates. Um, you know, whereas if you're not in tier one, you're not vaccinated, you know, you're almost like you have the plague and you don't even have anything, right? You just didn't get the vaccine. Right. And look, I'm look, I'm pretty conservative on this, but, um, you know, I had COVID. I had the infusion, the Bam Bam infusion, and I, and I had both vaccines. So, I mean, let me put it this way. If I get it, we're all in trouble, right? Mm -hmm. I've got more antibodies in me than, you know, anybody could possibly have. So I'm not afraid of it. Um, you know, I did it, you know, but I also, you know, I have people in my family that haven't gotten it because they have fears of things and they're young. Um, you know, even, even females, I, I get why they're reluctant. Um, but, you know, as far as football players uh, in the NFL, um, I think it's a real advantage to be vaccinated. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a tough subject no matter how you, how you slice it. But now that the NFL has taken away some potential paychecks, it just it gets a little more dicey, I suppose. But let's well, no doubt. When problem. people start taking your money. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, don't, don't touch the money. No, don't do yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's, let's wrap this thing up with probably the most important question of this entire interview. You were obviously the, the coach in Chicago there, Chicago Bears. My wife is from Chicago. Hot dogs, yes or no on ketchup? What's your stance? I'm, I'm not a ketchup guy, man. I'm a mustard guy. A mustard. I, you know, I have friends of mine that put ketchup on their eggs. They put ketchup <laughs> on everything. Uh, there's not really, other than French fries, I don't like ketchup. So I'm definitely uh, more of a hot sauce, onions, mustard. I mean, I'll throw some dill pickles on there. I'll throw some hot peppers. Uh, but um, not much of a ketchup guy. That sounds like a Chicago dog to me. You're a man of the people. Coach John Fox, well, you are a coaching legend. Now you're a walk-ons legend. We really appreciate you joining us, and uh, best of luck with everything moving forward. All right, fellas. It was my pleasure. Uh, I'll, I'll come on anytime. Thank you very oh, much. Open invitation. You can come on anytime, sir. Thank you so much, Coach. Thanks, Ryan. All right, huge shout out to John Fox. That was an awesome, awesome interview. And I know he wouldn't mention this himself, but he's also done some really, really great work with St. Jude's Children's Hospital and Levine's Children's Hospital in Charlotte. Um, so, you know, a, a great guy, great coach, and, and definitely a legend. And we'll have him on again. Andrew, that was really fun. Oh, yeah, so much fun. I've, I've had the unique pleasure of getting to know John Fox uh, the last probably 10 years or so. And, you know, he's always a fun guy. He's always bringing a lot of energy to things. But I'll, I'll say the best story he had was the, even though I'm a Broncos fan, that Panther story where he's like, you guys just quit. <laughs> and, and they were kind of like, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, you're not wrong. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, listen, Foxy has never been one to sort of shy away. And I think that's sort of the, the name of the game as a head coach. But to come in and tell a bunch of dudes in their prime, uh, you know, 53 guys in a locker room that, hey, y'all quit. Uh, hey, man, that takes some stone. So uh, all due respect to Foxy. That guy's the man. That's why he's a legend. But uh, Andrew, let's move into some Major League Baseball. Obviously, the trade deadline, a.k.a. wave the white flag time for teams that aren't in contention. 
look, there's going to be some going to be some moves. It's hard to predict who it's going to be, but obviously there are some teams that have been talked about in terms of you know total fire sale, right? The Cubs with Chris Bryant, Craig Kimbrell, maybe Anthony Rizzo. The Twins, they've got some good players there. Maybe even Cincinnati. Who do you who do you expect to really just kind of blow this thing up out of any of those teams that are kind of on that block? Well, I think the obvious one is the Cubs, and it's going to be so weird to see them get a facelift of all the guys who were instrumental in winning that World Series. You know that historic ending the 100-year streak or whatever the specific number was. But, yeah, I think it's kind of a foregone conclusion that Chris Bryant may be headed somewhere, Craig Kimball, even Rizzo, I think, depending on if they get the right deal in place. So that's kind of more like jarring, even though on in a vacuum it makes sense for the Cubs to blow it up right now. Then, obviously, like I've always got my eye on the Rockies, especially this year when they really do seem like John Gray and Trevor Story, their days are numbered. Um, they could even give up Marquez, though I think he's worth keeping, especially with his contract. But, yeah, I mean, John Gray and Trevor Story for me have been guys that have, you know, highlighted the Rockies organization for the last 10 years. So it's kind of a passing of the torch, which obviously started with the Nolan Arenado disaster. But I think both of those teams. And then, yeah, I think Minnesota was supposed to be a contender this year, um, underwhelmed. And so they're going to have to do a little bit of a fire sale. And, yeah, it's like you said, it's the wave the white flag year. It's just teams kind of looking in the mirror and saying, hey, is it worth our time to compete for maybe a wild card or should we just blow it up and get some prospects? Right. And yeah, and that's, you know, that's kind of the beauty and the, the madness behind the trade deadline, especially with Major League Baseball, right, is you're seeing these big, you know, big names being moved. I mean, especially you mentioned the Cubs, you mentioned Trevor Story, the Twins, certainly, but it, you see these trades on paper and it's like, okay, you're trading Chris Bryant for four guys that I've never heard of, right? And some of those guys turn out to be uh, Fernando Tatis Jr. or somebody else that is really kind of going to come on. But, you know, you're basically looking two, three years down the road. So it, it's hard for a fan base, I think, to swallow where it's like, all right, we're trading all these guys who just, especially with the Cubs, they got us to a World Series a couple of years ago, and we were going to be in contention again this year. Then we get an 11-game losing streak, and suddenly everybody's gone for a bunch of minor leaguers. So, yeah, I think it's a tough thing for a fan base to 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 get through, but it certainly makes the most sense for for long-term success. I, I definitely think, look, the, the first uh, shoe drop there with the Twins, they dealt uh, Nelson Cruz over to the Rays, which is a huge move. I mean, Nelson Cruz is 41 years old and he's still hitting 294 with 19 bombs and 50 RBI. So that's a, that's a great deal for them. I mean, certainly looks like maybe Josh Donaldson's going to be on the move. Jose Barrios, maybe even Byron Buxton. I don't know, but look, I mean, I was thinking about this a lot. Like I would love the, the deal that I would love Andrea. And I want to get your thoughts on this too. If you want to say like one deal that you want to see, but I would love for the giants to trade for Chris Bryant. I think that would be awesome. I think it'd be a great fit, but then I started thinking about it and really like, as much as, as a fan, I want to see like that big name move and go to San Francisco. I mean, they've just, they built this core of this team of a bunch of guys who are kind of cast offs and they've really come together. I mean, they, they beat the Dodgers. Uh, they got a chance to take three out of four from them tonight. So, you know, it's uh, as much as I want to see that I'm thinking maybe we just don't do anything and let's just keep that core going. Cause Hey, we got the first team to 60 wins. So uh, let's, let's keep it rolling. But Andrew, who do you really, really want to see on the move? So it's, I don't have a specific player in mind for the answer your question, because I want to, I want to point out a different storyline that I think is really fun is to see uh, the Padres, Dodgers, and Giants all fighting it out for probably the same handful of guys, because the trade deadline could end up being what ultimately ends up deciding who wins that division. And I think it's pretty clear all three teams are going to make the playoffs, which is going to be really fun because you're going to get two of them in the wild card game. But like I said, it like Chris Bryant could be the difference in solidifying the Giants as the NL West winners. Or the, the Dodgers can make a play for them. The Padres, all three are willing to spend money. All three are getting a lot of eyeballs right now. So I think that's kind of the storyline I'm keeping on for the trade deadline, especially as a fan of a team 
who has nothing to do except give away the players. Yeah, I mean, that makes total sense, right? It's definitely going to be a neck-and-neck race pretty much all the way to the end. Uh, it looks like everybody's kind of looking for pitching, right? But, I mean, I'm looking at the San Francisco Giants. they got the best ERA in the NL. So, for, for me, for my money, I want to stand pat at San Francisco. I want to let, you know, the, the Dodgers and Padres go ahead and deplete their farm system to try to get somebody just for a run, and hopefully it doesn't pay off. But, yeah, it's going to be an interesting one. Also, the Mets looking for some pitching, too. Now, DeGrom is hurt. Um, yeah, that's going to be a very interesting sort of market. Like you said, I think they're, you know, the teams, especially in the NL at the top are going to be fighting for just a handful of guys. So that'll be fun to see who, you know, who moves it. And really, I just hope that the, the Dodgers and Padres just try to outbid each other and just have to, you know, drive that market up and get rid of a bunch of players. That would be the best thing I, I could possibly ask for. That'd be Christmas come early. Uh, but Hey, speaking of, I guess, bidding up, but bidding down. One thing that is definitely trending down is the Olympics. I mean, we barely got underway with this thing and it's an absolute mess. I mean, the cardboard beds so athletes can't have sex, which has already been proven to be kind of uh, false, uh, if you will. Uh, I mean, you've got two guys, the opening ceremony director, he's out because he got found out to make a Holocaust joke a couple of years ago. Their lead composer out with a horrific bullying of a disabled boy back in high school. I'm not going to go into that because it's all disgusting, but I mean, the Olympics are the Olympics, right? I mean, you're going to, for, for a, a country like Japan, you're, you're basically, you mean, we, you've been trying to do this for, for now five, six years. It got delayed a year. Now it's like, okay, we've got all this money on the line from TV deals, but now you've got protests going on in the street, which for Japan, I mean, everything's very, you know, kind of respectful. It's not like out here in the States, but any sort of speaking out or, or, you know, contention among the actual people in the country of Japan, that's a huge, huge deal. So I really don't know if the Olympics could possibly, it's going to go on, right, Andrew, but I don't know if they could possibly do any worse than they're doing right now. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just bad. I mean, I don't, that's, that's pretty like expert analysis right there. But, you know, <laughs> I, I just think like we, and the thing is too, is we knew, like, going into it too, we were like, oh, it's going to be a shit show. It's going to be a disaster. And then as each week kept getting closer and closer, just more and more nonsense was coming out. Like, how is it just now coming out? Like, like literally the opening ceremonies are this weekend. How is it just now coming out that all this information about the people organizing it have like really bad things going on in their past? And, and then the, yeah, the cardboard beds, which like, I, I get it, but at the same time, like the Olympic Village is known for being just like this carefree zone. And if I were an athlete, I'd boycott. You know, if, if I can't be uh, enjoying what it, what it, you know, what goes into being an Olympic athlete and all the pros that come with it. So, yeah, I mean, we, 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 we uh, make fun of Team USA basketball, but in, in the grand scheme of things, like the, that Olympic basketball team is like not even on the radar for all the things that are going to go along with issues Olympics. Yeah, it's true, right? I mean, we, we kind of built this segment so we could talk about USA basketball. But, you know, after last week, we kind of hit on that. Now they're basically a non-story. I mean, there's, there's stories all over this that none of, it, none of it's good. I mean, Poland accidentally sent six extra swimmers. Uh, somehow they just couldn't count. Uh, I mean, you've got men's soccer, that, which has kind of kicked off, but it's absolutely not exciting because nobody's sending their best players. I mean, you see Mexico killing France. Uh, it just it doesn't make sense. I've never, you know, I've always been interested in the Olympics, but it certainly seems like this is the one Olympics maybe in history that nobody cares about. Nobody seems to want it to go on. Nobody's, no fans are going to be there. I mean, it's just, it's an absolute mess. It's a shit show. And, you know, I, I really, as, as good theater as it would be to see this thing go downhill even further, I really hope it doesn't because it's just, it's just a bad look for everybody all around. But let's move on to NCAA football, uh, Andrew, because this is a story that I definitely want to talk to you about. 
the big, big news, obviously we had SEC media days this week um, and it looks like Oklahoma and Texas are going to be moving to the SEC, which is insane. I mean, look, at first I didn't like it because it basically, look, I, I grew up knowing what to expect from these conferences, right? You've got the Pac-12, that's the West Coast. You've got the Big Ten, that's that sort of smash mouth. You've got the SEC down in the South, the ACC on the East Coast and the Big 12, all, you know, all kinds of shootouts, right, with the teams in Texas. Um, it didn't make sense to me. I mean, I get it from Texas and OU standpoint, but they kind of almost feel like the two coolest guys on the JV team showing up to a varsity party. Like you're going to get these weird looks right up until you do something cool, right? And these are two really, really good schools, but I think they're, they're definitely in for a bit of a eye-opening experience. And I think my favorite thing from this, Andrew, is the fact that it came out that this has been in the works for about six to 12 months, OU and Texas working with the SEC, and nobody told Texas A&M. Now, Texas A&M has been very vocal. They want to be the only team in Texas that's in the SEC, and they basically just got pantsed right in front of everybody. I absolutely love it. I don't feel bad for them because it's just a hilarious story. No, it's great, and there's a couple things to touch on here. I mean, like you said, with A&M, when they were in the Big 12 with Texas and Oklahoma, they were like the, the third or fourth biggest school in Texas at that time when it comes just to football school now that I think they're actually rated as the as the most valuable college program in America and that has to be because they're the only Texas school in the SEC so yeah they're definitely not liking this but then too Oklahoma and Texas I get the value going to the SEC they're already huge college football programs and brands and going to the SEC the best football conference makes a lot of sense but from a competitive standpoint why would you go to the SEC like they, they could just as easily go to the Pac-12 and say, we'll come play with you guys. And especially with the 12 team playoff and how that's going to be structured. All you have to do is win your conference and you're in Oklahoma is going to go from being the darling of the big 12, where they're winning 11 games every single year. So they're probably now like the fourth or fifth best team in the sec. And they're not even going to come close to sniffing the playoff. I just, I, I get that there's a lot of money on the line, but you can also make a lot of money in the Pac-12 with your brand as it is, which is already huge. You're already recruiting with a lot of the same people in the Pac-12, but then going there and dominating the comp you know, the competition. You could have Texas playing USC every single year in a Rose Bowl matchup. It just it makes too much sense from just like a competitive and money-making standpoint versus the SEC where you're just going to be making a lot of money. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's it's certainly a money play. I mean, and as a fan, I I'm pretty excited about some of those matchups. I mean, you get Texas OU versus a, a Florida, you know, uh, Alabama. I mean, those are those are really, really interesting, interesting matchups. Auburn, any of you name who you want. But yeah, I mean, basically, Texas and OU are saying, well, yeah, it's been, it's been nice to be the bell of the balls. Now let's just go be middle tier so we can make some money. I mean, it's, it's kind of an odd thing. Certainly, I think the other part of this is this is effectively the end of the Big 12, right? I mean, teams are going to, this is the first domino to fall. Teams are going to be pining to get to go elsewhere team trying to join the big 10 the acc they're trying to get out of there you know i don't want to necessarily call myself the purist but i mentioned it already i like the idea of having these sort of five big conferences everybody kind of fighting it out you know what you get in your sort of geographical standpoint now the big 10 with moving with maryland and rutgers obviously that's kind of now been muddied the waters a little bit but i think one interesting thing is this is if this is the end of the big 12 I went down a rabbit hole earlier today, Andrew. So there's 65 teams among the five conferences right now, the five major conferences. Now we've got, what if we, what if we end up with four super conferences, 16 teams each, that means one team is going to get left out. So if you're looking at the big 12, I mean, maybe Baylor, Kansas state, TCU, Oklahoma state, West Virginia, 
I mean, which one of those teams do you think is going to be the last one out of the party? Because it seems like it's going to be one or two guys who are going to just be, you know, you're basically going for the Big 12 to the American or something like that. Well, the ideal team you should leave out is Rutgers. Just kick them out of the Big 10. Because here's the thing, too. Like, we can make fun of Kansas as much as we want in football, but they're still a blue by basketball team. Like, a, a, someone's going to want them in their conference because it's going to elevate basketball, which right behind football is a huge thing you want to have going. And then, the, and then when it comes to Rutgers, horrible football school, not a good basketball school. And they were already kind of an, a late addition to the Big Ten, too. So there's not history there. There's not like this culture of, you know, they've been in the Big Ten for forever, even though they're not good. They're just a clear choice. The only other option I can think of is you you maybe just keep Notre Dame independent and then kind of reshuffle and have it. So, yeah, there's 16 pack, pack 16 teams. There's a, a big 16 as opposed to the Big Ten. You have the ACC and the SEC with each 16 teams. But, yeah, if, if, if there's one clear choice where they're just futile in both sports, and I don't really think you're going to be missing a whole lot, is Rutgers. Yeah, I think that's fair. I mean, Rutgers did make the tourney this year, so congratulations to them. But yeah, there's certainly, I mean, there's no history in the Big Ten. Nobody seems to really care that much, like you said, right? At least Kansas has one of the two big sports. They've got a great basketball school, horrible, horrible football school. Um, but, you know, I, I guess for my money, and this is absolutely, there's no science behind it. I would just say Kansas State only because they're just middle tier and they don't excite me in in any way whatsoever. I mean, for my money, I'd rather swap. If you're going to get rid of Rutgers, swap them out with Cincinnati. I mean, Cincinnati's been a team who's been trying to get into the Big Ten or a big conference uh, pretty much for the past decade or so, and they just keep getting left out. I would like to see them instead of, you know, instead of a Rutgers. But, you know, that's neither here nor there. I do think it's uh, it's certainly a big story with OU and Texas, but this is just the first domino to fall. It's going to be very interesting to see how these conference realignments go over the next 12 months or so. Um, let's see how much time we got here, Andrew. Oh, we got a few minutes. All right. Well, <laughs> let's move on to this because we actually talked with John Fox a little bit about this offline, but Deion Sanders, our man, Dion, prime time. One our uh, our intern Drew, he's got his uh, his Dion Sanders Niners jersey in the background. I absolutely love it. Obviously, as a Niner fan, I got love for Dion. But my man wants the Nick Saban treatment. Andrew, he had some reporter who called him Dion a couple times. Dion wanted to be referred to as Coach Prime. When the guy didn't refer to him as Coach Prime, he basically walked off. Now listen. Deion Sanders, the player, nobody can hold a candle to him. The guy's a Hall of Famer. He's one of the best to ever do it, if not the best to ever do it. But you coach at Jackson State. This is your second year. I don't know if you really can go around and say, you need to treat me like Nick Saban. That's, that just doesn't make sense to me. No, but I also get the sense, too, of like, you know, if he's really trying to establish an identity as a football coach, then, yeah, you at least get the bare minimum of Coach Sanders. Where it's, yeah, Coach Prime, if I'm a media member, I'm like, come on, dude. Yeah. But like, yeah, if you're just like, you want to call him coach or coach Sanders, I get that. But, you know, and then, and then coach Fox yesterday, you know, when we were offline was like, yeah, but he also was the, you know, best quarterback in the league for 15 years. So I, I say, let him, let him get call what he wants. It's true. I mean, coach Fox, and in that, that respect, I'm pretty sure I called coach Fox, John, maybe once or twice. So maybe I, I I'm part of the problem there, but yeah, mm -hmm. you know, coach, coach Sanders, coach prime wants to be that, but listen, Dion's your government name. Don't get upset if somebody just accidentally calls you by that, but Hey, if, if the guy was going to make a statement, don't ever call him Dion ever again. I mean, I think he made it right there. So we'll, we'll see how that goes. But I think at the very least, I'll give Dion Sanders credit for this. Two years ago, nobody's ever talking about Jackson State football ever. And now suddenly he's, you know, he's on the news. He, people are talking about him. People are kind of excited. He's getting some big recruits. So in that respect, Coach Prime, you're doing your thing. All right, Andrew, let's move to dudes and duds. Who do you got? Well, so dudes, I mean, we, we already talked about a nauseum of what Giannis accomplished in these finals. It was, it's, it really is historic. 
I mean, in the moment, we're kind of like, oh, yeah, what a great game. But then you really realize how his numbers stack up to the all-time greats. And you're just like, oh, a small market team won the NBA Finals. It's such a feel-good story with this, this, you know, superstar player that no one dislikes. And then the more you kind of learn his backstory, the more you're just like, I love this dude and I'm not a Bucks fan. It just, you, you really are so happy for him. And then the all-time great, best part about it is when he went, showed up to Chick-fil-A the next day, just, you know, you'll give me 50 nuggets. You kept saying 50 burger, but I was like, no, it was 50 nuggets. Well, it was 50 um, nuggets, but you know, it's called a 50 burger. Well, I know, I know. But I mean, and I think we, we have the stat, you got almost $300,000 in brand value for that video alone for Chick-fil-A. So they're it's more than happy to give him nuggets whenever he shows up again, I'm sure. But just such a feel-good story for Giannis and... You know, I'm, I'm really hoping that, hey, another European player uh, follows the script in a year or two and hoists the Larry O'Brien trophy for my Nuggets, baby. I love it. Well, listen, my dude is actually going to be some dudettes. We tweeted about this earlier in the week. It's And now stick with me on these names. Sarah Langs, Alana Rizzo, Lauren Gardner, Melanie Newman, and Heidi Watney. They are the first ever all-female broadcast. They called the Orioles raise game earlier this week. Uh, huge shout out to them. It's a huge transition in, in this in this sport. Women are really starting to prove themselves. And actually, one of my favorite things related to that, Andrew, is Anthony Santander, outfielder for the Orioles. He was talking, he was caught uh, talking to one of his buddies in the dugout, basically saying, Hey, this is great. Women are smarter than we are. This they deserve this chance. Anthony, you couldn't be more right as a man who's happily married. Women are smarter than us. We need to recognize it. They certainly know their sports, especially these five women. So all, all due respect to those dudettes of the week. Definitely. And then I wanted to, you know, take some time to give a shout out to, uh, you know, Greg Knapp, who was the a Jets assistant. Uh, I think he was their quarterback coach this year or their passing game coordinator. I don't know what his uh, title was, but um, we were we were talking with Coach Fox offline. He was very close to them. He was, of course, uh, the quarterback's coach in Denver when Peyton was there and um, helped them, you know, with that greatest offense of all time season and the Super Bowl year. And he tragically passed away this week uh, when a, a car struck him while he was riding a bicycle and he was only 58. So just really tragic. And from all the stories coming out, it's clear he was a beloved guy, maybe not a household name for an NFL fan, but in NFL circles, he was just beloved and really tragic passing. And so, yeah, that was really tough to hear this week. But uh, yeah, I just wanted to take some time and give him a shout out. Um, yeah, rest in peace. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, listen, I got one more dude for you. And this is for all the folks out there who like a, a good feel good story. Uh, Ted Lasso, Ted Lasso coming back for season two, tomorrow, Friday, July 23rd. Now, I mean, I was like everybody else, Andrew. I thought it was really funny when they, 2013, they did that very interesting um, sort of little play, little commercial when the NBC Sports announced their coverage of the Premier League. It was a brilliant, brilliant concept, but it, of course, seemed like it was going to die there when they decided to turn it into a full show. Uh, I thought it was going to be absolutely garbage. Turned out to be one of the best shows I've ever seen. Best show, definitely bet one of the best shows of last year. Uh, Jason Sudeikis, I'm not sure if anybody's having a better year than that guy. I mean, he, he, he won the best actor for this show for Ted Lasso and, you know, accepted his award high as a freaking kite, which I, you know, I absolutely love that about him. So I cannot wait for season two of Ted Lasso. He's the coolest soccer football coach that has probably ever lived and maybe ever will. You know, it's great. And for those of you that may not be sports fans, one, I don't know why you're listening to this podcast then, but in, in case that's the case, um, you know, it was made by the people who made Scrubs. So it's like, it's got legitimate, really well-respected yeah. TV writers working on it. And like you said, Jason Sudeikis is great. It's just such a, such an optimistic show and it's fun loving. And you just, you, you find yourself falling in love with the characters and it has nothing to do with the fact that it's a sport, sports show. So yeah, definitely a dude of the week. And then my thing is going to be also a media franchise is my dud of the week, which is the new Space Jam movie. Oh Holy 
my God, what a terrible, awful movie. And like, here's the thing. The original Space Jam with Michael Jordan is not going to go in the you know, National Film Registry for greatest films of all time. But it's just, it's a fun movie. It's silly. It's, it's one of those you can just sit down and just have a blast for a good 75-minute movie. And the Looney Tunes are great. But this new one is just, it's, it's two hours of nonstop Warner Brothers product placement mixed in with bad acting and, a, and just horrible dialogue. And for once, like, it's not, I don't blame LeBron. I don't think LeBron was terrible in this movie. I think he actually, like, served it well in, in terms of what he was asked of. But, you know, they're, they're just crushed. They're cramming in, like, Game of Thrones appearances, Harry Potter appearances, Austin Powers, all these things that I'm like, this is just a shameless cash grab to push all your products and, and, and media characters. And it was just, and there's no Bill Murray, too. I mean, that's, that's oh. got to be a thing you needed to have. So I'll say this, you know, the Jordan-LeBron debate rages on, but MJ definitively wins in the Space Jam category. It's not even close. It's terrible. Don't waste your time. Just awful. Zero out of 10. Jesus. Yeah, I don't know what's worse, Andrew, the fact that they actually tried to make a new Space Jam or the fact that you actually sat through it, because I will not be watching that. And I'm so glad that you had to give me that, that you, that you gave us the breakdown, because that just drives it home that I will not be watching that, and you couldn't pay me to do it. So uh, my final doubt of the week, and this is a bit conjecture, because this is some rumors. I think the Cleveland Indians are going to be announcing their new name as of tomorrow. And I've seen a few leaks online that would claim to see that the Cleveland Guardians are going to be the new name. Now, I do not know. I know this is conjecture. This may not be the case. Maybe they're just, you know, pulling the wool over everybody's eyes. But if it is, in fact, the Cleveland Guardians, I cannot think of a stupider name for a baseball team than the Cleveland. I mean, what are you guarding? Like the Bay of Cleveland or whatever the hell that is. And I've seen some of the mock-ups of those uh, of their um, logos. And it basically looks like they didn't change anything. They pretty much just they don't have to move like they'd move the in out of Indians and then put G-U-A-R in. And, you know, it's like the, the laziest thing I've ever seen. And it's also a complete ripoff of the Anaheim Angels logo. So I really, really hope if you hear me out there in Cleveland, anybody in that front office, any of those folks who've been working for the last 12 months, like these high paid, super smart, creative folks. If Cleveland Guardians is the name, you should really just stop and just go to AAA because you have no, no business in Major League Baseball. Yeah, I think you said it best. That's a AAA team, man. <laughs> That's a AAA team. That's the, the one that does, you know, those kooky like Star Wars nights. So they throw banana peels on the field or, you know, some guy batting in stilts. Like that is not a major league baseball team. So I hope to God that Cleveland mm-hmm. doesn't do that to themselves because they, they're kind of already a laughing stock as it is. I mean, certainly the Browns finally might be good this year. They had a great year last year, but Cleveland is a city that needs a win almost more than anyone in the U.S. And if it's Cleveland Guardians as your baseball team, I mean, you, you can't be a fan. I'm sorry. You just don't respect yourself. So. No. Yeah. But what's a bummer too, is they had a couple other good options. Like there was talk of the Cleveland spiders, which is the first iteration of a baseball team in Cleveland, which, I mean, I don't know if there's a lot of spiders in Cleveland, but at least it's different. And then the other thing too, is the rock and roll hall of fame is right there. Yeah. Like why can't you do something really fun incorporating your musical like history and, and that kind of presence. I like when I think of Guardians, there's nothing about Ohio or Cleveland that I think of immediately. Like I think of Chris Pratt and like that little that little raccoon. Like it's the Guardians of the Galaxy. I mean, they're like the history for as as much sort of beef as Cleveland as a city gets. There's still a lot of history there, right? I mean, you mentioned it. Like there, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, I'm sure there's all kinds of interesting things. The Spiders that used to be that for the first team's name. The Guardians have absolutely nothing to do with the city, nothing to do with baseball, nothing to do with really anything other than a lazy team of creatives putting something together haphazardly. So for, for, for all, all my friends in Cleveland, which I don't have any, uh, 
I pray for you. I really, really do. Mm. That's all the time we have for today is the walk-ons Thursday, July 22nd. We are out. The walk-ons.